0: Welcome to another edition of Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Max Frost. And I'm Matt Winesett. On this episode, we interview Chris Arnotti, author of the new book, Dignity, Seeking Respect in Backrow America. Chris is a super interesting guy. He worked for 20 years at an elite Wall Street firm as a bond trader after earning a PhD in physics, but he left his job in 2012 to document life in the Hunts Point neighborhood of the Bronx, considered the most dangerous neighborhood in New York City.
1: For the past seven years, he's been traveling around America, photographing and interviewing these forgotten communities, what he calls back row America.
0: And these photographs and interviews have become this book. This conversation is a bit different than others we've done in the past. It's less policy oriented and more about his experiences meeting and befriending those suffering from homelessness and drug addiction. But we had a fascinating conversation, we think, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So without further ado, here is Chris Arnati. Chris, thanks a lot for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for having me. So you have quite an interesting story. Um, we talked about a bit about the book in the intro and we'll get all into that later on um, but can you just tell us a bit about yourself how did you end up writing this book
2: I was working in Wall Street um, I got a PhD in physics um, and from there I went to Wall Street and I was working in Wall Street as a bond trader um, for 20 years um, and during the uh, after the financial crisis in 20, 2007 2008 I kind of had a uh, rethinking of my values. And part of that rethinking of my values involved um, going on long walks uh, to, to re- re- reduce the stress. I'd always done that before to reduce the stress, but the walk kind of took on a new, um, <clears throat> a new, a new goal, which was to just kind of talk to people along the routes I was going. Just kind of just hang out and talk to people, because I had realized that that was my favorite part of these walks was not you know not the walk itself, but the people I was meeting. And I started feeling really kind of realizing that I was talking to a lot of the people that had been most impacted by the financial crisis, something I had a hand in, and I hadn't really understood the consequences of the crisis. I mean, we understood it as kind of like, you know, blips on the screen Mm -hmm. or abstract numbers, but to actually, you know, meet some people who, although not directly impacted by the financial crisis, were certainly impacted by the world I had kind of helped create this kind of uber-efficient uber-profit-driven, uber-economic-driven econ- uh, world. And I found myself basically spending a lot of time in communities that were what I would call now call stigmatized, marginalized, um, basically hanging out with poor people. And um, I took the next step, which was I was doing this so much kind of in my free time that I kind of didn't do so well at work and didn't really care about work, and uh, just so I quit or they quitted me in 2012. And I spent my full time doing what I had done before, which is basically spending time in these marginalized communities, um, photographing and talking to people and writing about their stories.
1: Yeah, I think I first discovered you on Twitter, maybe 2015 or 2016. During the election, you were tweeting out all these photos of people that you meet met in McDonald's typically. So how did that, how did you go from just a guy that kind of became Twitter famous to writing this book?
2: Yeah. The, the the walks led me to the Bronx, which led me to studying, spending time with homeless addicts, which led me to spend time in McDonald's, which led me to say, hey, I want to kind of do this across the country. If what I saw here in the Bronx in New York, was it true across the country? And so I got in my car, I went across the country, and that coincided with the rise of Donald Trump. Yeah, And I hadn't really intended to write about politics, um, but um, I started seeing that Donald Trump was a lot more popular where I was than people on Twitter knew, mm-hmm. that led me to talk about it on Twitter, which then led to um, me kind of writing papers um, or articles, and then eventually those got got the eye of a publisher who asked me to do a book on it. Really?
0: Yeah. So can you? I we've both read the book, but can you say something to the, um, for the listeners? The subtitle on the book is "Seeking Respect in Back Row America." Um, I know it's not easy to define back row America. We we read. Like I said, we read it, so we have a sense of what you're talking about here. But for the listeners, how would you describe the places you were visiting, the kinds of people you were meeting with?
2: I think um, the communities I were going to what I call stigmatized, marginalized communities, places that are, I mean, I, I don't know what type of language you are allowed on this podcast, but um, been screwed over. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> um, what I started realizing is the, the communities I were in were p- places where and the people I was spending most of the time with was the people who were either stuck in addiction or homeless or or um, frustrated or on the margins or in and out of jobs, were people who didn't have a lot of education um, and the people who were kind of the blue check marks on Twitter, my old self, the people who were making proclamations about this election that ended up being wrong, all had a lot of education. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of, I started realizing the real the real division in our country, there's a lot of divisions, there's wealth, there's race, but one of the ones that was kind of really becoming more and more central was education, what type of education you had and how important it was to you. And so I started, kind of came up with this kind of a phrase that the people like myself who had gone to grad school, uprooted from their town and moved to certain neighborhoods in certain towns, what I call the front row, they're like the kids I I knew in high school who or elementary school who always sat in the front row, always answered the question, always wanted the teacher to make sure they knew that they knew what was going on. And the people I was hanging out with in these communities were more like the back row people who who didn't necessarily do well at school, not because they weren't necessarily bright, but because, you know, they didn't particularly want to do well at school or maybe their home life required them to focus on other things. Um, and so what I call about back row America is effectively, at one level, it's about education, but it's come more about the communities they live in, these communities that kind of an aggregate focus on things other than just education.
1: Where does the line fall? You, I mean, we hear a lot of different divisions, like the 1% and the 99%. Some people say the favored fifth, like the top 20%, the upper middle class is where the dividing line is. When I was reading this, the back row, it didn't seem like that high of a percentage of people. So like, is it is 50% front row, 50% back row? or um, do, it's You, hard, you like?
2: know, I, In my mind, I think of the people I hung out with were probably the bottom 20%. But I think a lot of what I said applies to what I would say now is almost the bulk of voters. Yeah, um, it, It's it's the elites that are, you know, the elites, the front row, who are more different than the rest. The back row isn't so different from, you know, the, the bulk of the country. It's the elites who are very different. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, the people I focus on are look kind of, I'd say, the lower 20%, lower 10%. But I think they're more indicative of the general population than the, than the front row is. So you,
1: you talk to a lot of these people. A lot of these, you talk about people you just run into at McDonald's. I mean, it gets pretty... It's pretty heavy at some points, and to use a slang term in <laughs> favor of our generation, I think, where you talk about literally them sitting down and they're trying to find find drugs to buy and whatnot. And it's tough. Like how I almost got the sense like these people I, I don't want to say anyone's beyond help, but how you talk about driving people to rehab and then falling out. So like how how has society failed them so bad where they they find themselves in this situation?
2: Um that's a hard question, but I think my general view is that in aggregate, it's not not in particular. I mean, there, there's always other you know. There's always cases that don't fit into the aggregate, but in general, aggregate addiction is basically about trying to fill some void, mm-hmm. um, a loss of something, a loss of uh, stability, a loss of community, a loss of a sense of identity, and the people I spend the time with, the, the worst of the worst, so to speak, are often people who have suffered immense trauma at life, and I I, I don't know. You know, to use your, your phrase beyond help, I don't know what to do. And I, I, I kind of try to – I don't know if that comes clear in the book that I, I say like, you know, the, I, I've come down the side of harm reduction. The best you can do is help. You, know, you, you can't save anybody. I've come to that conclusion. I think that's a fair one. You, um, and you shouldn't want to necessarily. These, these are people who have their own lives and they kind of can do what they want to do with it. But it's more about um, what can you do to kind of mitigate the worst of the problems. But in terms of what can we do as a culture to to kind of diminish the, the appeal of drugs, um, you know, I think there's a lot of. I'll go back to the title of the book of dignity, which is I think a lot of people are humiliated, and um, they need to feel respected, and they want they want they want some dignity, and you know, and and the absence of that, they'll try to. Um, the quest for dignity doesn't always end in good places. The quest for respect doesn't end in good places. So sometimes it means going into drugs to kind of like deal with the stigma, uh, the the shame of being stigmatized. So I don't know, you know what we can do as a culture other than try to make things more functional, make these communities more functional, um, return a sense of identity to these communities and provide people with a path other than drugs that allows them to form communities, allows, allows them to, to to find respect and, and gain a sense of purpose.
0: We had Tim Carney on the podcast yeah. a, a few months ago, and he talked about his new book. And a lot of the basis of that was this idea of community, which is so important and has largely been lost um, in, a lot of, in a lot of places across the country. Yeah.
1: And that was also a book that wasn't meant to be political or about Trump, but inevitably was kind of taken that way as a how we got Trump type of book. When commu- yeah. communities fail, people, people find identity and Different ways,
2: Right. And that's what I write about as well is that um, one of the things I write about in my book, and I think, um, you know, again, I have to be careful saying it because when it's taken out of context, people are like, oh, you're encouraging drugs. Well, no, I'm not. But drug use is very communal. You know, the crack house is very communal. It's a community, um, you know, and it may be a community of losers, but it's your losers. Yeah, You know, it's, it's people like you. They look like you. They act like you. They've also been told they're a loser. And so it's, it's a welcoming place and, you know, it's kind of their – it's their bar. Like in really, really de- devastating neighborhoods, the drug den or the crack house is a bar. Like, I mean, it's where they go to meet – you know, everybody knows your name sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, people are looking for things to fill the gap. Drugs is one of them, you know. Um, I think the preferred one is – the one I think, you know, in terms of solutions what I try not to talk about too much in this book because I don't want to be – because first of all, I don't really know. Um, and and one of the things in my book, I try to get through, is the sense of like, I think we in the front row should all just like, just you know, take our take our egos down a notch, and and maybe understand that we don't know, and just listen. But one of them is faith. Um, you know, I walked in, like the joke I always say is I walked in, kind of I walked off of Wall Street, uh, vegetarian atheist, <laughs> and you know, seven years later I'm eating meat at McDonald's and going to church. <laughs> so you know, I think the value of faith. Is something I learned a lot about, and I think it's very important in terms of providing a community other than drugs.
1: Tim Carney's book also talks
2: about faith. A lot, so
1: some overlap here. Yeah. So I mean, you're also talking to two relatively young guys that also don't know a whole lot, and should probably we should acknowledge that we don't know much. But I don't know. It's, it's also fashionable among our friends, our age group, to say that you know the solution is just legalization of most drugs. When I was reading this, I I got the sense that that would not be a great idea, and. And also, wasn't it's when when people talk about the war on drugs back decades ago, wasn't that also kind of spurred on by these like early damaged communities themselves who wanted better, just more policing to save their kids from this? So, so what do you what do you think about when people say, "Oh, well, Portugal just decriminalized all their drugs"? Look how great they're doing.
2: I think there's a very big difference between decrim, decriminalization and legalization. <clears throat> I think I would like to see uh, decriminalization. I would like to see, certainly for certain drugs, I would like to see it. Treated more as a public health crisis, and one which, um, you know, instead of going through instead of going through Rikers, you just go to detox. Mm-hmm. Instead of doing cold turkey in Rikers, um, but I also think legalization. I don't think people understand quite what that means. That's kind of society saying it's cool, yeah, and that's very dangerous. You know, to just to go to swing um, from um, saying one, you know, saying. The decriminalizes is very different than legalization. Legalization is giving almost a sign of approval. I certainly think there are drugs that should not be legalized. Um, I don't think heroin should be legalized. I don't think cocaine should be legalized. I do think I would like to see if you're going to if you're going to criminalize it, at least be um, fair-minded in your. Don't treat the minority community and the poor people as badly as you do. Um, you know, be even-handed in your application of the law. But I, I, again, I, I'm I'm probably for de, I'm, I think my my view if I had one a strong one is is certainly decriminalize but do not legalize those, those are different things <laughs> yeah and you know and I think it, and, and to your point about um, <clears throat> people have a little bit of a blinders on about what went on in these communities one of the things that I one of the things I always say about these communities like so when I went into Hunts Point. In the South Bronx—it's—it's—it's it's, it's the quote most dangerous neighborhood in New York City—and I've been in—I've um, been in—in in general, the way, if you think of crime as this its like they usually do by ten, like by by hundred yeah. thousand. The neighborhoods, I the good neighborhoods, well, just to use like a murder rate, it's like it's like three per hundred thousand, two per hundred thousand. The bad neighborhoods are 60, 40 so it's it's a factor of ten. But what that means is it means that. In good neighborhoods, 99% of people are following the law. In bad neighborhoods, it means it's 94, yeah. 93. It's still the bulk of the people. Yeah. And a lot of the problem then is, first of all, they're not as dangerous as people think they are. Most of the people, the overwhelming majority of the people in these neighborhoods just want to live their lives and be left alone, man. They want what everybody wants, yeah. which is to have, you know, to have a safety for themselves and for their kids and to build a life that's better for the children than it is for them. No different. It doesn't matter if you're in a good neighborhood or a bad neighborhood. You basically want that. The problem comes is that when it jumps from one percent of b- badly behaved people to seven percent or eight percent, it can really change the dynamic of the neighborhood to where the the ninety-three are, are terrorized by the seven, and the seven end up defining the seven percent end up defining the neighborhood and stigmatizing it. And then once once it becomes once it becomes seen as a, as a place of bad things, and then it then becomes kind of self-replicating process by which it spirals down, then it becomes people stay out, you know, they get the lesser of everything, Mm -hmm. and it just goes down this ramp. So yeah, you know, I think if you go into any of these quote, bad neighborhoods, the majority of people want, (laughs) don't want this to happen there. They don't want drugs. They don't want the sex work. They don't want the crime, no different than anybody else. It's just that they feel like they have less control of being able to. And the problem is, how police have responded has not, has not been helpful to the 93% because they treat the 93% as... Mm-hmm. They, tr- they treat the others who, aren't, who just want the, as bad as well. <laughs> so it becomes this really ugly dynamic that happens.
0: So did you, did you ever feel threatened?
2: No. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the thing. Is one of the things that I, you know, I, I try to emphasize again is, I, look, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a skinny white guy. I used to be skinny. I am a white guy walking into a neighborhood where I'm the only white guy. Yeah. Into a crack house at one in the morning... And uh, no one bothered me, you know. And, and um, you know, there, was, there were situations where I had to explain myself. There are situations where I use kind of certain ways to diffuse kind of was what, clearly an awkwardness or a, a lack of trust. I mean, one of the things I, always, like I, I did for, to try to gain trust with people who I knew, if I knew, like, they'd see me around, they didn't quite trust me, um, <clears throat> what I would do is, you know, if I knew they were kind of skeptical of me. One of the things I would do is like they you know. If I'm hanging out in a corner, at one taking pictures, and this one person standing there, not sure of me, and I've seen them maybe two or three times and know that I know them, that I know they, I know that they see me around. I'll do something like you know, I'll kind of like a look at them and talk to them a little bit, and then I'll say, "Hey, excuse me, I got to run back to my car. Can you hold my camera for me?" Wow. So I hand them a three thousand dollar camera, and then I go away for five minutes, and I come back, and my camera's there. They have it. So it's my way of saying, I trust you, buddy, yeah. you know, so, you know, I, and, um, or I'll try, like the other thing is that sometimes I'll just joke. Some people think I'm a cop and I'm like, you know, <laughs> like I said, if the cops are dumb enough to put a white guy undercover here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the
1: more surprising things, how do these people react when you put a camera in front? Like, I feel like my stereotype would be you put a camera in front of people's faces in these neighborhoods. They would immediately say, get that camera out of my face. How,
2: like, how... Well, again, it comes from building trust. You, I don't, I just don't jam a camera in someone's face. Yeah. So very, I mean, I think I took seventy-four thousand pictures. Um, um, very rarely is there a picture where they're not looking at the camera, and that's intentional to show you that. I mean, for a bunch of reasons to let you know that they're acknowledging me, um, and to provide them with the dignity of a, of a, of a picture they want. But um, but the, the other thing is, it's just I mean, you know, again, it comes from a lot of trust. Yeah. Like so, I, I one in, in the pictures I have of people where they're not facing the camera, those are those those come from. Meet them knowing that I'm going to do that, mm-hmm. and telling, and, all, and, I, and so it's it's a matter of really building. And taking the picture was often almost the last thing I did. I'd talk to them for a while, and then have a conversation, and then I say, "Hey, do you mind if I take a picture?" And if they were at all awkward about it, I just would pass up.
1: Yeah. Were they usually eager to share their stories though?
2: Oh, I mean, personally? so that's part of this book came, part of my whole project came about because on these walks, I when I when I first brought a camera, people wanted to tell me everything. Yeah. And I started realizing the stories were more interesting than the pictures. You know, I mean, like the, the minute the camera came out, they wanted to tell me their life story.
0: Yeah, Frank. When I when I first, well, when we first got the book, I thought it was gonna be more pictures. I started flipping through the pictures, and I started reading it, and that, and I got much more into it. You know, just it. This the the story. I mean, a lot of it's heartbreaking, but at the same time engaging, and it's just kind of it's kind of a look into a world that just we don't experience firsthand. Yeah. I mean, um, other question though. So when you were Working in on Wall Street, I mean, you're kind of like an arch, you're like the arch capitalist. I mean, like you said, everything profit-driven, numbers-driven. What are your thoughts now after all this? How do you see capitalism, the economy? Do you see it as black and white capitalism, just screwing over these people, or do you see it as much more complex than that, or it's the government that's not servicing these people? I mean, on the economic side,
2: where do you stand now after all this kind of stuff? I think I probably. I think I flip between being a Marxist and a socialist, <laughs> um, and that sometimes recognizing that those. Are, I mean, look, I'm not. I'm not also. I'm 53, 54, and I spent some time in Eastern Europe during the 70s. Uh, I don't. I don't have blinders on.
1: Yeah, a lot of people in this building would say those are the two, the same thing, anyway. <laughs>
2: I, I spent. You know, I don't have blinders on. I, mean, I worked in Venezuela. I'm like, you know. Wow. So, um, but capitalism as it is being implemented now, or as we imagine it now, is screwing a lot of people over. And one of the things, I, I'm, I'm kind of at a new level of, uh, I just think that when you, you go through life, you have the, you peel the onion back and you get to the center and you feel like you have another layer of understanding, mm-hmm. you get closer. I, I don't mean to sound arrogant, I feel like I've gotten to the next layer, which is realizing that part of what this book was, is understanding that it's far more part of our problem is that we only think in th- terms of the economic. I mean ca- Marxism and capitalism are two sides of the same coin. Everything's about economic. It's just how you restructure the economic. I kind of feel like we have to start giving people another pe- we so focus on the economic that we forget the uh, the orthogonal uh, um, um, vectors of meaning. You know, we, we forget about faith. We forget about the f- place. We forget about identity. Things that you can't put an economic value on. They're just different. Mm-hmm. And so rather than keep on seeing things in terms of the economic, I think problem, we've become so, both the left and the right, have become so focused on arguing over how the economic pie should be divided we missed the point that maybe it's – we should start talking about the other pies <laughs> and why are we only – why are we only focused on the economic pie? But if I go back to the economic pie, I, I, I do think that, you know, the the winner-take-all mentality, the, um, the profit-driven, just minimize cost, produce the most stuff is really missing um, – really hurting a lot of people and leaving them with a sense of meaninglessness kind of, you know – I used I I used to quip like, you know, maybe, you know, I said on Twitter like I mean, 4 years ago, 5 years ago and I got a lot of crap for it. I got like, <laughs> we'll leave that out. <laughs> I I got a lot of crap for it, but I think, you know, um one of the things I think about is i um, I said something like, you know, maybe instead of four iPods people want, one iPod and three friends. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I I I think we just think about the economic too much.
1: Mhm. Yeah. I mean, are there any so this book is more about the human side. Are there any probably not politicians, but thinkers or intellectuals out there that you do think are grappling with these issues and putting out ideas that people need to pick up and take more seriously?
2: What I've realized and to something of my confusion is that a lot of what I talk about in this book. I mean, I'm not surprised that other people have talked about it for many years. Like, you know? <laughs> I'm surprised who they are. <laughs> they tend to be kind of more Catholic intellectuals. Yeah. There's
1: an interesting debate going on on the right right now between like the First Things magazine type, a lot of Catholic traditional intellectuals versus the more libertarian right wing. And and I'm sure the left is in, like involved in a similar type. But it seems like a time when there's, everything is up for debate at this right. point.
2: Right. And I feel like where I... I don't... Again, I, I don't... It's not like... Because I agree with their one view on this, I agree with all of them. Believe me. Like, yeah. <laughs> I got to be very careful because people take stuff out of context. Like, you know, I believe in LGBTQ rights. Yeah. Um, uh, that's just who I am. But Augusta... I believe his name is Augusta Del Noce, is a Italian philosopher or political philosopher from the from the 70s and 50s and who I find very much like... He talks a lot about the non-economic and things like that. I find myself reading him and going, oh, yeah. Hmm. That's kind of like, you know, kind of what I think. Um, So I think I find myself with kind of people who I wouldn't have associated myself with or thought to have associated myself with. You know, in in a joking way, sometimes i sometimes tell people I'm a Catholic Marxist, you know, which is just like, you know. There's more of those than you would think on Twitter. Right. Exactly. I mean, but those are the people I kind of think gets my book more than most. And so that's how I kind of. Uh, you know that, that's how I kind of measure. Whereas I, I don't know if I have a. I'm still, I still identify as a leftist. I'll, yeah. I will vote for Warren, and, and then when she, if she loses, I'll vote for Sanders. Yeah, um, that's who I am. Um, I voted for Hillary. That's where I'm comfortable. And I think, you know, um, I'm, I'm pragmatic enough to think that my crazy views are never going to be accepted. Yeah, um, you have to be. You have to be incremental.
1: Yeah, so the, there's are some people though. You went in in the book. You mentioned in the intro going into these communities, not with the intention of judging, or not with the intention of feeling like you know best. But there are people, scholars here. I think Richard Reeves at Brookings has a new book on the um, the upper middle class, and and they kind of say the opposite. They say that the maybe the one of the problems is that the people in the the upper class, the front row kids, for, in your vocab term, they don't preach what they practice. Like they all. They have form stable families. They finish high school. Oh, that's definitely job. the case. And but they just they don't they for some reason they don't want to be judgmental. And you seem to take the opposite approach. Where you, I mean, do you think that's just the wrong way to think about it?
2: Um, I think I think I think he is right that all those things, the freedoms that the the front row advocate for, they don't take advantage of. Yeah. Or they don't use. Yeah. They they follow traditional kind of so, socially conservative lives. Yeah. With with the exception of um, the male fee- was exception of where it comes down on um, males and females in terms of marriage, they, they but but I would argue that that's an economic thing. That's the case where the economics they have the economics to put. So one of the things I always say is so there's this, there's there's a, there's a woman in my book. She's a sex worker. Um, her street name is Smurf, and I think she she's on the streets. She has um you know how many kids she has eight yeah seven and they're all taken away from her. And she's by CPS or variety of I, I believe by family, family services, family, yeah. family services, and some of them are with her sisters or extended family. And so she spends all the time in the McDonald's and talk. It's in the book where we talk, and she shows me on her phone the pictures of her babies, her most recent kids. Mm-hmm. And I asked her a question that I already knew the answer to, and partly I asked it for because I knew that I was going to write the book at this point. I wanted the reader to hear it, like you know, why do you have so many kids? Yeah. I knew what she's going to say is because that's all I got. Really. And what would that what she's basically saying is um, the way I think about it is one of the things I, I I've seen on the streets is they want part of part of being pregnant and having is 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 their way out. They're gonna get they're gonna get clean for the kid's sake. They're gonna have that. They're gonna build the stability. Have the white pick fence. Almost everybody I've met, even if you're homeless, even if you're a sex worker who has nine kids who've been taken away from the state. They all want the white picket fence. They want the stable life. They want the home. They want the stable um, husband or, or, or wife or whatever partner. And they want that. But they don't have the economics to put that in. So the way I think of it is like the wealthy, us, the front row, have the economics to put our house in order literally. Yeah. At the age of 25 to 30 or 20 to 25 or whatever. And to then have an economic stability to, to To build a home, to, to 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 have kids around. Um, and the thing is, everybody wants to have kids. Everybody wants that family. That's a universal, um, almost universal. Someone will take issue with that, I'm sure. But and so with with the inability with with economics, un, unable to put the economic house in order, they're going to have kids anyways. Yeah. And so I would argue that the the, the wealthy, the elites. Are doing it because they have the resources to do it. I think I would get, I'd say the poor, uh, the back row, would do it if they had the economic resources to do it.
1: Yeah, your response is, that her response is actually different. I feel like that flies in the face of the kind of front row technocratic response to why they have so many kids is just, oh, well, you know, they don't have access to proper birth control or whatever, but they they actually want to have kids, it sounds like.
2: Oh, I mean, you know, and the thing is there is, um, you know, there's a really tragic, I don't know if it made it into the book a tragic story by uh a sex worker in the Bronx by the name of Millie, homeless addict, and um, when I had met her, she had just um, lost two of her kids. She had she had lost her last kid um, to um, family family services, and she had lost it because um, she started doing drugs again in it during her pregnancy, and so when she was born, they did the you know testing, fetal testing, and did the testing of the mother, and they took the child away immediately. But as she had told it. She was clean for seven months while pregnant, and then she broke and did a speedball um combination of heroin and crack. Um, and she started crying talking about it, you know, because you know, – but she had tried for seven months. She really tried. And, you know, I can't verify that she did it, but I, I believe her. Yeah. Um, there, one, of the, one of the things I keep on saying about the book is when I – I didn't verify what people told me. I just took it to be – but when I did check, it was almost always the case. Um, but she really wanted that family. And so part of her part of her pregnancy was, in some ways, a way to say it was her attempt at getting straight, is her attempt to get detox. Like she okay, this is I'm going to do the right thing for my kid, and you know it didn't work. And so they're like, okay, I'll try again. So, again, I think everybody. It's rare that I've met people who didn't want a family.
0: Or have you maintained relationships with any of these people? Are you still in touch with them?
2: Uh, in the Bronx, I'm in touch. I'm in touch. I've been in touch with one for the entire length. There there was two and uh, one of them dropped off the radar but it's, uh, there's, Shelly is um, in the book. I believe she's in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the one I took home to meet her, meet her mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made, te- like she texts me all the time. Um, yeah. So yes.
0: Did they see the book?
2: Um, I'm going to give Shelly a copy. Okay. And you know, that's going to mean like, you know, she's going to try to extract money from me for it because <laughs> that's the way our relationship goes. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, uh, but, She's, we've, you know, I, I think she'll be happy. Um, I hope so.
1: This might be, a, if we're almost out of time, this might be too big of a question to end it on. But what was your takeaway with, so you interviewed people, black people, white people, all sorts of different type of people for this. What what was your takeaway? Are, is the common perception of, you know, frayed race relations and the very different experiences of black and white America? When you were talking to these people, what was your takeaway from that? Oosh, that is a yeah.
2: Sorry, <laughs> sorry. This is a little too much. <laughs> we talk, talk about race relations, <laughs> and you got one minute. <laughs> uh, as a white guy, what do you think about race relations? Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's three white guys. Maybe, maybe this is a bad one to end it on. But
2: um, I guess I would push it back to you and ask. Um, I don't mean to like give you a quiz, but either did you? What did you think? What did you take away from my conver- my conversation about race in the book?
1: I was. I'm thinking mainly of the woman at the end, who's the Trump supporter in Ohio. Is just a white woman, and she she seems to have very similar complaints as every other person you interviewed, just about you know their country's going downhill, people don't take her seriously. But I feel like her response to it is to support Trump, who I imagine a lar- very large segment of the African American community thinks is just horrendous and racist toward them. So I'm, I'm wondering how people with who seem to have such similar backgrounds and life stories, how they, you know, get to
2: wildly different. Uh, I mean, it, it, re, the way I say it is, what I found in the country, regardless of race, was an equal amount of frustration amongst the back row. Yeah. Um, uh, similar demographics of poverty um, and a, an equal amount of um, frustration, humiliation, and less anger is more humiliation and frustration. Yeah. How that frustration and humiliation gets rendered is a function of race. Okay, So whites can and do sadly have the ability to punch down um they can look at trump and at the most i'll be the most benign i can to the, them they are the most um forgiving of them they will they can overlook his n- ugly racist statements yeah others find it appealing that's awful but i would say more of his voters are in the kind where they can just ignore it like you know yeah. Every candidate comes with a with a grab bag of issues. You can just pretend not to hear it. Mm-hmm. Blacks can't do that, obviously. Yeah, you can't ignore being attacked. <laughs> you just can't. So whites, because they're majority, can and do punch down. Um, have that as a, uh, their, their their ability. Blacks, because of the, being the minority, um, and because of the history in this country, uh, the awful history of this country. They often deal with their frustrations through cynicism. They just they just opt out. Yeah. Like, what good is it going to be? Like, you know, we can't ever be a plurality. So I call it um, I call it rational cynicism mm-hmm. or justified cynicism. They're so frustrated with the system.
0: Well, something I took. A, I mean.
2: So they choose not to vote. Yeah. Uh,
0: well, but I was wondering. There's I think was it in
2: Gary, Indiana or
0: um. Did you go to Gary? Mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. And you're, talk, and you're it's talking. It's like a 95% black town, I do. And and you're talking about some of the people, and they're saying, you know, the the all the white people left, the jobs left, the white people left, um, which is very similar, though, also to. I mean, I I understand completely what you're saying, but at the same time, like, what that, those complaints sound so similar to so many white Trump voters as well. Um, You know, the same th- the jobs are left, for blame it on what you want. Factories are gone. The only people left here are the people that couldn't get out. um, so yeah, kind of across, and that's in that sense one of the things I took away from the book is that across racial lines, problems are similar, and like you say, I guess responses responses differ. But.
2: Um, what's interesting about uh, you mentioned Gary is um, when I, when I go into Gary is a if the, re- if the listeners don't know is um, working class black town steel factory town. It's outside of Chicago, sixty miles I think, fifty miles, um, and so it has a lot of the same issues with Trump you know people go to people go to these Trump towns when I went to them too. What was interesting is in the Trump towns that have lost the steel mills, people blame generally immigrants for taking their jobs in mexico yeah and Gary, they blame technology huh. and so that's probably smarter on their part um well, I say it's both smarter, but it's also like they're they've been for them to blame immigrants is like they they they're often on the end of that one, yeah. They're the end of being punched at. They're the end of being stigmatized. They're the end. They're on the end of being the scapegoat. So they're very loath to use it. And so it's it's. So yes, I mean you know, the behavior. You know, blacks again. Blacks don't have. It's not even whites have the, the unfortunate advantage of angry whites can punch blacks. <laughs> And um, punch down at them, and, and stigmatize them, and scapegoat them. It's a long, unfortunately a long tradition in our country of doing that. And so they'll they'll go there. Um, and so I think the fr- so that's what's frust- so annoying is that. I'd say roughly half my book is in minority towns, and I did that intentionally to try to show that these are these the minority communities have been facing this for a long time. People, yeah, people
1: have a uh, have pointed out that uh, the problems. People only seem to be taking these, this problem of alienation and lack of dignity seriously now because it's now happening to white people as well. But whatever the you know, possibly race motivated motivations here, do you think we finally have reached a turning point where now, like a critical mass of people in America, policymakers too have realized that there's a, just a severe dignity deficit, and maybe we have reached a point where things can can turn around for the better?
2: I hope so. And I guess I I'm a little bit, you know, if you're gonna if if the last question is if if you want to frame it as am I optimistic? I'm not.
1: I was trying to end it on optimistic. But I guess
2: we, I guess <laughs> well, I mean, but I, I guess I would say is the reason I'm not optimistic is because I don't think the problems can be solved with policy or I don't know what they, can, they are. They're just so deep. Yeah. Like I don't know what's going to cause – I don't know what's going to cause, you know, smart – smart well, people who are prone – inclined to education to, to stay in their towns. I don't know what's going to cause a CEO who runs a company to think, hey, you know you – know, I'll accept less profit growth to kind of keep the keep 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 my 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 employees in this town. I don't I just I don't know what's going to change. You can't really policy that. Yeah, it's just kind of a you know it has to become loose and considered inappropriate to do that. But if I, I'll leave you an optimist now and say that where I have optimism, so I don't think these trends are going to. I think these trends towards polarization, towards anger, towards frustration, towards um, elites being kind of more and more removed are not going to end. Yeah. Um, and I think the politics surrounding that are going to get uglier and uglier. Wait till you get Trump, point, Trump 2.0, you know. My concern, my, my, my what makes me optimistic is I say the fundamental decency of the people I met. So it goes back to the point you mentioned, like, you know, the problems in the working-class co- black community are very similar to working-class white people. I hope they figure that out. <laughs> yeah, You know, I hope people, and people figure it out at the individual level. You know, yeah. they, they know at the individual level, and the fundamental decency at the individual level is there. I just don't know at the collective if that can ever be, that if that individual dec- decency at the collective can, can get us out of our problems.
0: Well, bad news for all the people who listen to this podcast for the policy recommendations, but... Thank you very much for joining us, Chris. This was fascinating. I think everybody will enjoy listening to it. All right. Thank you for having me. And as always,
1: thank you for listening. We should add, though, that as much as we enjoyed interviewing Chris, we are not Marxists or socialists, or I'm certainly not. Maybe Max. Absolutely not. Don't worry, Dad. Okay. All right. (laughs) Good to hear. Good to hear. As a reminder, if you like this podcast, please like, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Ricochet, wherever else you find your podcast. And we'll be back next week. Well, I will be back. Max will be going to. Are you sure not a socialist? You're going to France. (laughs) Well, that's where I'm going. Going to document the other side. Okay. Back row France, maybe. (laughs) Not quite. So Max will be gone, but I will be back with a surprise special co host next week that is vying for Max's job. Might
0: take it permanently. We'll see. Yeah, so leave lots of nasty reviews after that episode to make sure that I'm still in a job when I get back.